So I claim that there are irreducible, irreducibly normative truths about reasons and that the essential normative element in these claims is a relation that holds between a fact, an agent in certain circumstances, and some action or attitude. The idea that there are truths about when this relation holds doesn't, I argue, have puzzling metaphysical implications. To claim that something is a reason is just to claim that it bears this relation to some agent and some action, nothing more. No metaphysically weightier property is required in order for truths about reasons to have the significance we attach to them, nor, I've argued, is it puzzling why such facts should supervene on facts about the natural world. But even, or especially, if truths about reasons represent a sui generis class of facts, distinct from natural facts, it may seem puzzling how we could come to know such facts. John Mackey, for example, claimed that if we were aware of these facts, quote, it would have to be by some special faculty of moral perception or intuition utterly different from our ordinary ways of knowing everything else. He continued, when we ask the awkward question, how we can be aware of this authoritative prescriptivity, of the truth of these distinctively ethical premises, or of the cogency of this distinctively ethical pattern of reasoning, none of our ordinary accounts of sensory perception or introspection or the framing and confirming of explanatory hypotheses or inference or logical construction or conceptual analysis or any combination of these will provide a satisfactory answer. A special sort of intuition is a lame answer, but it is the one to which the clear-headed objectivist is compelled to resort. Mackey's here talking about objective ethical truths, because as I said in my earlier lecture, I think he would, or at least should, say the same thing about normative truths in general. The problem he sees arises, I think, from giving the idea of normative truth an unnecessarily metaphysical reading, which brings with it the idea that knowledge of normative truths would require a special faculty analogous to sensory perception. I believe that this metaphysical reading should be rejected, and that the epistemological problem that it seems to bring with it is illusory. Although there are other problems about knowledge of normative truths, which should indeed concern us. As background for discussing both of these claims, it will be helpful to consider the case of mathematical knowledge, specifically knowledge of truths about sets. This is a comparison that's often appealed to by defenders of normative truth, and I think both the similarities and differences between knowledge of truths about sets and knowledge of normative truths are instructive. What gives rise to epistemological questions about empirical knowledge and makes a causal theory of knowledge seem like an appropriate answer to these questions is the fact that it is part of the content of most empirical judgments that they are about objects that are distant from us in space. If information is to get from them to us, how is this to happen but by their having a causal impact on our sensory surfaces? Transfer of information by a non-causal process, some form of intuition, would indeed be a strange and implausible alternative. But things are quite different in the case of mathematical knowledge. Nothing in the content of mathematics, mathematical judgments suggests that they are about objects with any particular spatial location at all, hence in particular not a location outside of us. Mathematical reasoning is about certain kinds of abstract structures and the relations between them. The conclusions of such reasoning have implications for things that exist at particular places and times, such as about the number of pencils that would remain on my desk if I were to start with five and remove three. 
But the mathematical truth from which this particular empirical claim follows is itself a necessary truth about numerical quantities in general, which need have no spatial location. The fact that mathematical facts and mathematical objects have no spatial location may be taken as ground for thinking that there is, after all, a special problem about mathematical knowledge. For if these objects exist outside of space and time, the problem of explaining how information could get from them to us might seem even greater than in the case of empirical truths. No causal link can bridge the gap, so some yet more mysterious form of intuition might seem to be required. But here the spatial metaphor has simply gotten out of hand. The idea of a region of existence outside of space and time, hence even more inaccessible to us, is one we should not accept. If we reject this metaphor, however, we are still left with the question of how we discover truths about such matters. There is not a greater epistemological problem about mathematical judgments than about empirical ones, but a problem or problems of a different kind. The problem is not how we could be in touch with abstract structures that mathematics describes, but rather how we can characterize these structures in a way that makes clear which principles and which modes of reasoning about them are valid. Here the case of set theory provides a helpful example. I appeal to it rather than say number theory, because number theory and, and set theory have this in common, that once you start with the axioms, it's all logic or, you know, and, and, and precise, precise argument all the way down. But where do the axioms come from? It might seem pretty obvious in the case of number theory, although even there there are questions, but set theory is a better example to choose uh, because there's more controversy and interesting speculation about how we know which axioms are correct. Some of these axioms are very generally accepted, but the subject matter of set theory can't be simply identified with the logical implications of any particular set, not even, say, zermelo frankel set theory, which are the most widely accepted. We need some basis for thinking that those axioms are correct, some way of thinking about sets and what sets there are that provides a rationale for these axioms and a basis for assessing other candidate axioms as well. But what kind of thinking could this be? There's also the question of which, whether further axioms should be accepted, and this question seems to be about whether the axioms are true. To think about that question, again, we need some way of thinking that's independent of any particular axiom set. So what kind of thinking is this? What are we doing when we are, as I've said, thinking about sets or about the concept of a set if this is not a kind of perception? Well, in a few cases, it seems to be a matter of seeing what is, in some fairly clear sense, true by definition, or we might say included in the concept of a set. For example, a set is defined as a collection of objects, the identity of which is determined by its members. So the axiom of extensionality which says that no two distinct sets can have exactly the same members, seems perhaps true by definition. But most axioms are not plausibly thought of as having this definitional character, even axioms that seem entirely unproblematic. For example, the pair set axiom says that if A and B are sets, then there is a set C whose members are just A and B. This isn't true by definition, I would say, or a conceptual truth, but it seems obviously true. Why is it obviously true? Well, it seems obviously true because the way in which the new set C is defined in terms of or constructed out of the given sets A and B is so clear and apparently unproblematic that there seems no reason to suspect or deny it. Consider another example, the so-called axiom schema of replacement. This is a bit more complicated, but not much. 
An instance of this schema says that if you have a sentence, say MXY, which for every object X in a set associates with it a unique object Y, so we can say it might be the relation Y is the mother of X, right? Nobody has more than one mother, I think, even with modern technology, as far as I, far as I know. Um, so for any person X, there's only one person Y who's the mother of X. So if you start with a set of individuals, persons in this case, um, then the axiom of replacement says that there, there exists a set of just those things that bear the relation M to something in in the original set, uh, the given set. So the set of all mothers of, of creatures in the original set would be a set. Well, that picks out this new set pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clearly. It's called the axiom of replacement because it's a set that's obtained by replacing every object in the, in the original set by the thing, this, this extra object, the other object, which the uh, relation M, uh, the formula M, sorry, cor- correlates, uh, correlates with it. So... Um, this, this axiom, sorry, this way of defining or constructing a new set from given sets isn't as simple as in the case of the pair set axiom, and it's con- the consequences of allowing this to be repeated over and over again are less obvious. But the axiom is nonetheless widely accepted, both because of its innate plausibility and because it leads to very plausible theorems, uh, without, which couldn't be obtained otherwise, uh, without, as far as anyone can tell after decades of use, generating any implausible conclusions, let alone contradictions. So it seems both conceptual, not, it's not a conceptual truth, but it seems plausible, and it seems to be, as it were, supported inductively by the conclusions it leads to. I take these to be good examples of how we can come to have knowledge of sets. They seem to me to serve as a useful corrective to the tendency to think that such knowledge must come from one of two sources. Either we would have to get it simply by inspecting, as it were, the concept of set, or else we would have to have access to it by some form of intuition of the realm of sets. The former would limit us to analytic truth in some specific sense, and the latter seems mysterious, the intuitive alternative. So this might be called the analytic synthetic dilemma. But this dilemma seems to be tenable, not because there's no distinction between the two possibilities it describes, but because each of them is misdescribed in crucial and misleading ways. Some of the modes of reasoning about sets that I've described may involve a kind of picturing, as perhaps the pair set axiom, when I ask you to imagine this set C constructed out of A and B. But this picturing is not plausibly understood as some kind of perception or intuitive contact with the realm of sets. It's simply a way of representing to ourselves ideas that we already that we already have. All of the conclusions I describe depend ultimately on a kind of reflective equilibrium thinking. All we can say about them is they seem plausible on the face, and there seem to be no obvious problems with their implications or with the line of thought that leads to them. So even in the case of set theory, I would say, although it's a case of derivation coming down from the axioms, if you take the axioms themselves into question and ask how do we know all of that, our knowledge is not secured by chains of logic, as Socrates might have said, but rather by bungee cords of plausibility of varying degrees of firmness. The judgments of plausibility on which such thinking relies are ones that we can be mistaken about. Naive set theory, according to which any sentence f of x determines a set consisting of exactly those things A, such that F of A, was initially very plausible. 
it seemed to, you know, once we know what the property is, which all the members of the set have in common, it seems like we've got a good grip on what, what, what the set is like. But as, well, as is well known, uh, this idea of what sets there are led to paradox and contradiction. Even leaving aside the outright contradiction, however, naive set theory might have been rejected simply on the ground that it allowed for the possibility that a set could be a member of itself, thus conflicting with the extremely plausible idea that the members of a set are prior to the set itself. A set is an arbitrary collection of independently existing things. And even if there weren't Russell, even if you didn't have Russell's paradox in hand, um, you might have thought that the naive conception was already running afoul of this idea. Now, one thing that's attractive about the, what I call the naive conception, that is that there's a set corresponding to every property, um, is that it provides a very general characterization of what sets there are, as opposed to piecemeal, piecemeal characterizations offered by particular axioms, which, even though they might individually be plausible, might seem ad hoc in the absence of some overall account of what set theory is about. This raises the question of whether there is any such overall account of the universe of sets that might provide a rationale for particular axioms. One well-known response to this felt need is what's called the iterative conception of set. This is a general characterization of the subject matter of set theory, according to which the sets with which that theory deals are just those that would be formed through the following process. You begin at stage zero, with some finite list of specified non-set elements, like the people in this room or the objects on my desk, or if you don't have any of them handy, the empty set. For any stage n plus 1, you form all the sets of basic elements and sets that were created at previous stages. You keep doing that, say, let's go through all the natural numbers. You go 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. Then after you've finished all those, then you get to first the first limit ordinal, omega, and at that, at that point, you form the set of everything you formed at the previous infinity of stages. You have to work fast to get it done. But, uh, and then you keep on going until you reach the next transfinite ordinal, and you then collect them again, and so on. Now, this conception of what sets there are, that is, there are all the sets that would be constructed in this, in this transfinite procedure, could be seen as arising naturally um, from... Uh, from, from the problem I mentioned uh, about uh, the, the naive uh, conception of set through what I called a process of reflective equilibrium, that is, trying to find general principles that are compatible with our judgments that seem to us very plausible. This provides a reason to look for a general characterization of the universe of sets, sorry, sets that might provide a rationale for axioms. Sorry, sorry, here I'm getting... Um, I seem to be repeating a paragraph, don't I? Well, good. This is very good because this lecture was too long. And, and uh, oh, how did this happen? The miracle of word processing sometimes gets uh, gets in your in your way. Okay. So let's start over. After I finished, after you finished all that all that iterating through the transfinite hierarchy, right now now we're back on track. The iterative conception is an attempt to spell out the idea of priority, which I said was omitted from the naive conception. That is, the idea that a set is an arbitrary collection of pre-existing, independently existing elements. It thus begins from an idea that might be thought of as part of the concept of set, that is, sets are arbitrary collections of pre-existing objects, but which goes beyond what might be thought to be already there in the concept to give a 
I'd say a more complicated and subtle and far-reaching interpretation of how to make sense of this idea of, 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 of what sets what sets our life. Um, it goes on to make you know, give up what seems to be a pl- initially plausible account of the universe of sets, uh, although it's not uh, it's not utterly uh, not utterly unproblematic. Um, so here, here's the description of the, of the reflective equilibrium process. We begin with a naive conception, our first general characterization. We investigate the consequences. We see it leads to un, unacceptable results. We ask why. We see that, well, it wasn't just that it leads to unacceptable results, but it didn't get this idea of priority between the set and its members right. So we, we look for something uh, that might capture that idea of priority, so we come up with the iterative conception, and so on. But that doesn't solve the problem because the iterative uh, conception of set is itself incomplete. It provides a rationale for most of the axioms of accepted set theory, uh, but doesn't provide support for, for example, the axiom schema of replacement, which I mentioned earlier using the example of your mother, right? You can replace you by your mother and you'll still have the same, same set. That seemed pretty clearly true, but it turns out that you can't show that it's true simply by showing that the set of mothers uh, would be guaranteed to exist by the iterative process that I, I described. I won't go through the argument for that. You can work out the infinite numbers of steps as a homework problem. Uh, so as I've said, replace, the replacement axiom schema is nonetheless widely accepted because of its plausibility, its usefulness, and the plausibility of its consequences. Two further points about the iterative conception will be helpful in what follows. The first is that although the iterative conception is external to any particular axiomatized set theory, it is itself a piece of mathematical, set theoretical thinking. It's a description of an abstract mathematical structure, employing the notion of set, appealing to the idea of all sets of elements formed at previous levels. So what do you mean all sets, right? And it also relies on some idea of what the hierarchy of transfinite ordinals is like. So it's a substantive claim. It involves substantive set theoretic ideas, doesn't explain them all. Despite this, it's a useful characterization. As George Bulos wrote, it's not to be presumed that the concepts of set and number can be explained or defined by means of notions that are simpler or conceptually more basic. However, as a theory about sets might itself provide the sort of elucidation about sets and membership that good definitions might be hoped to offer, there's no reason for such a theory to begin with or even contain a definition of set. That we are unable to give informative definitions of not or for some doesn't and shouldn't prevent the development of quantificational logic, which provides us with significant information about these concepts. So, so far, Bulos. I believe, then, that there is no general epistemological problem about set theory, at least not one arising from the difficulty of explaining how we could get in touch with these abstract objects. The epistemological questions that there are and that need answers are of two kinds. The first is how to understand the forms of reasoning that can lead to particular conclusions about sets validly. The second, related but not identical with the first, is whether or in what cases we have reason to believe that statements about sets have determinate truth values. This is analogous to the question I discussed at the end of my last lecture about the idea of correctness that's applicable to claims about reasons. An answer to the first question is implied by what I've already said. We can, it is claimed, and I'm prepared to defend, 
reach conclusions about sets by a combination of reflective equilibrium reasoning and deductive argument from premises supported by such reasoning. The iterative conception plays a role in this process by providing a partial characterization of the realm of sets, which provides a rationale for some axioms, thereby, one hopes, removing the suspicion of arbitrariness that might otherwise cloud them. The iterative conception may also be helpful in answering the second question of determinateness, and this is the final point I want to make about it before leaving this topic. The description of the iterative conception relies at crucial stages on the idea of, as I said, all sets formed at previous stages, and this may be thought to leave open important questions. For example, does the idea of all sets include for any previously formed set of disjoint sets, suppose you have a set which has a lot of sets as members and and none of those sets have any members in common, right? Does, Does the iterative conception guarantee that for any set of disjoint sets, there will be some other set which contains exactly one member from each of those disjoint sets, a so-called choice choice set. The description of the iterative conception that I gave leaves this question open, and any way of extending the iterative conception to settle the matter seems to beg the question. This might be taken as further evidence that the iterative conception fails to characterize adequately our intuitive idea of all sets when we speak of forming all sets. But does this intuitive idea itself identify a universe of sets in which there is a determinate answer to the question of whether there will always be such a choice set for any set, finite or infinite, of disjoint sets? Let's consider the lines of thinking leading to different answers as to whether such a set will always exist. The line leading to a positive answer begins from the thought that the description of a choice set doesn't seem problematic. Why shouldn't all sets include for each set A of disjoint sets, at least one set containing a member from every, subs- every set can- that belongs to A. Moreover, it might be added, the thesis that there always is such a set, called the axiom of choice, is so useful in proving further theorems that it's widely used, hasn't led to contradiction, and indeed seems indispensable for certain forms of developed set theory. That's the positive argument. The contrary view begins by noticing that the description given of the choice set C didn't identify any particular set, unlike the example with the mother, right? Once you know what mother of is and you know who the people are in the the original set, you know exactly what this other set is going to contain, right? And the pair set and so on. Uh, But this choice set, although you think, well, there must be one such set, but it doesn't tell you what what such a set would would be like. Things would be different if we could assume that all the sets in the, in the, in the original set A of disjoint sets, which, which we began, were well-ordered. Then the choice set C could be defined as containing the first element of each of these sets. Without this, all we have is a description of a kind of set. And all we can say is, well, why shouldn't there be a set of this kind? It seems harmless. A constructivist like Michael Dummett would say that in the absence of a proof that there is a particular set of this kind or a proof that there is no such set, the question of whether such a set exists has no determinate answer. More generally, a characterization of the universe of sets, such as the one given by the iterative conception, doesn't guarantee that every well-formed statement in the language of set theory is either true or false of this universe, independent of whether we have any way of determining which, again, according to Dummett's view. 
a moderate conception of what determinateness requires, might hold that statements about sets have a determinate truth value only if there is some proof that settles this question, if only we could discover it. Whether, whether we now have that proof in hand or ever will discover it, if there is such a proof, then there's a term, the determinate answer to the question of whether such a set exists. Dummett's version of constructivism is more demanding. He holds that in order for a mathematical statement to have a determinate truth value, we must actually have in hand some proof which establishes it. This position of Dummett's is called anti-realism, which makes it sound like an ontological position. But the dispute, as I'm going to interpret it, is not, I would say, an external or ontological one about the existence of abstract objects. The issue is rather about the kind of reasoning that's required to support the claim that a mathematical statement has a determinate truth value. What this anti-realism leads to is not a kind of fictionalism or some other denial that statements in set theory are ever true or false, but rather just a particular point of particular view about what constitutes adequate mathematical reasoning. Let me turn now, you'll be glad or sorry depending on your disposition about these things, let me turn now from these reflections on the philosophy of set theory to questions about practical reasoning which are supposed to be my concern in these lectures. Leaving the fun stuff behind and getting into the murky and and more difficult matters. There are important differences between set theory and practical reasoning. The subject matter of set theory, as I said, is an abstract theoretical domain which we can characterize in a way that makes it possible to argue about it in a precise and formal manner, at least up to a point. The subject matter of practical reasoning is, as the name implies, practical and much less precise, perhaps incapable of being rendered precise. I don't mean to minimize these differences. I've discussed set theory in order to make several points which I think, however, are instructively analogous to the case of practical reasoning. The first of these is a point about method. Practical reasoning is like set theory and not being about the physical world. But, I think, just as in the case of set theory, insofar as there is an epistemological problem about our knowledge of truths about reasons, it's not a problem generated by the fact that we are not in causal contact with the relevant facts. Our conclusions about reasons for action depend ultimately on a kind of reflective equilibrium thinking again. All we can say is that they seem plausible on reflection, that there seem to be no obvious problems with their implications or with the line of thought that leads to them. At the most abstract and general level, I think this is enough. The epistemological problem about practical reasoning is whether this process leads us to a sufficiently clear and determinate characterization of the kind of reasoning that supports these conclusions. Are there definite answers? This is a very doubtful question. And this is the question of determinateness, which I've just been discussing in the set theoretic case and described three different answers to it, right? The, might say, most generous answer is, well, in the universe described by the iterative conception, even though we don't know it, there surely either is a choice set or there isn't every time, right? That's the most, the loose version. Then there's the moderate version that says, well, whether there is such a set depends on whether there actually is a proof that would show that it exists, whether we know it or not. And then the more rigorous version was the dumbed version. No, there isn't a definite answer unless we actually have some way of showing what that, what that answer, uh, what that answer is. So I want to say that the, the main, one of the main questions about practical reasoning is, is, is analogous to that, and you might have you know, analog, an analogous array, array of answers to it. I'm going to discuss determinateness more fully uh, next time, although I'll have some more things to say about it before I'm done today. One question 
Um, one question for us, then, is whether we might find a general characterization of reasons for action that would have this role of describing, as it were, the universe of reasons in a way that would, if you, at least if you took a more this, this sort of generous uh, position, like the iterative conception, uh, give us support the idea that practical reasons constitute a determinate domain about which there are definite answers. What I called in my first lecture a normative desire theory is a candidate for this role. As I pointed out in that lecture, this theory itself is a normative thesis. It begins with, the, with a normative claim that if, if doing A would satisfy a desire that the agent has, then the agent has a reason uh, to do it. Since, since this theory begins with a normative claim, I pointed out, it would not answer metaphysical worries about normative truths, nor epistemological worries described from such, such, such worries nor would it explain the practical significance of judgments about reasons. I've argued in the intervening lectures, however, that these problems, uh, at least the metaphysical and the, and the, the motivational one, are not, are not real. The iterative conception of set also provides a useful example here, as I said, an example of how a general characterization of a domain could help, I think, properly to allay some worries about it, even if it is itself a substantive thesis within that domain and so does not address these external worries. In particular, a normative desire theory might support the idea of determinateness or correctness by characterizing reasons for action in a way that makes it clear how it can be that questions about reasons have definite answers, whether we are now in position of the facts that would be required to know what those answers were. Although it would be a mistake to reject normative desire theory on the grounds I mentioned in my first lecture, that is, reject it for its lack of metaphysical depth, such a theory would, I think, like the iterative conception of set, need to be justified by a larger reflective equilibrium argument. That is, it would need to be justified by arguing that on reflection, it provides the best explanation of those conclusions about reasons that seem to us most clearly correct. It seems to me to fail this justificatory test one reason for rejecting it, the, the most commonly cited reason, I think, is that it seems to give clearly wrong answers in many cases. To take an example of Mark Schroeder's, if I were to have a desire to eat my car, this in itself would give me uh, no reason to try to do so. Schroeder doesn't accept this as a counterexample, but he discusses it at some length, and it might seem to the rest of us less sympathetic to be one. But this is not simply a case, I think, of rejecting a perhaps appealing general thesis on the strength of its conflict with some intuition we have about particular cases. Rather, as is often the case in reflective equilibrium arguments, I believe, reflection on these conflicts, the conflict between this general, appealing general hypothesis and particular conclusions that, we, that, we, that seem to us plausible, has the effect of undermining the plausibility that the general thesis had to begin with on more general conceptual grounds. As I pointed out in my first lecture, the appeal of a normative desire theory lies in part in the fact that the claims about reasons that it supports are grounded in something that's already true of the agent, namely his or her desires, thereby making it a claim that the agent cannot deny without irrationality. Counterexamples of the kind just mentioned, in which a pointless desire, sorry, a pointless desire seems clearly to provide no reasons at all, call our attention to the inadequacy of such claims. They bring out the fact that the ability of a desire for Q to provide a reason for an action that would promote Q depends on the reasons for wanting Q in the first place. 
This is an instance of the general divergence between claims about reasons and claims about rationality that I mentioned in my first lecture. That is to say, uh, claims about reasons and claims about what agents must treat as reasons on pain of irrationality. If an agent sees something to be said for bringing about Q, then it is irrational for her to deny that she has reason to do what will promote it. But it doesn't follow, the act- that follow, doesn't follow that she actually has any reason to do this thing. So the status of normative desire theory is more like that of naive set theory than like that of the iterative conception. It doesn't lead to contradiction, but reflection on its counterintuitive implications leads us to see that its initial appeal was based on a mistake, a tendency to confuse conclusions about reasons with a certain kind of conclusion about rationality, and a tendency to fail to see that the reasons provided by a desire depend upon reasons prior to that desire itself. This leaves us with the question of what other general characterization of the domain of reasons there might be. Are we left simply with a diverse collection of axioms, as it were, a diverse collection of intuitions about which things are practical reasons for action? The main candidates for this role seem to me some form of constructivism or some way of grounding reasons in an idea of rationality. I will try to explain why neither of these seems to me likely to succeed. Broadly speaking, a constructivist account characterizes the facts about a subject matter by specifying some procedure through which these facts are determined or constructed. Many quite different accounts fit this broad definition. In order for an account to be constructivist in this broad sense, the procedures it specifies need not, as in mathematical constructivism of the kind Dummett favors, be a process through which we actually determine the truth values of statements in the target domain. The stricter version, like Dummett's, has obvious appeal, but I will allow weaker versions to count as constructivist in the sense I'm going to discuss. So, for example, a view might be constructivist if it held that the truths of a given domain are just those for which there is a construction, a proof, or a piece of reasoning leading to it, whether or not we know of or will ever in our lifetimes discover uh, that piece of reasoning. That would be like the moderate version of of, uh, the argument, the conception of determinateness that I discussed earlier. My contractualist account of moral right and wrong would count as a constructivist account in this broad sense. It specifies that in order to determine whether an action is morally permissible, we should consider a general principle that would permit it. We then consider what objections individuals might offer to this principle based on the way in which they would be affected by it, by living with the consequences of actions that it would permit and with the possibility that actions may perform such actions since they would be permitted to do so. We then compare these reasons, the reasons for objecting to it, with the reasons that individuals would have to object to a principle that would forbid actions of the kind in question, based again on how they would be affected by such a principle. We then compare these reasons for and against and consider whether it would be reasonable for those who have reason to object to the principle permitting the action to reject it, given the reasons that others have for objecting to the contrary principle. If it would be reasonable to reject the principle, then the action in question would be morally wrong. The rightness or wrongness of an action, then, will depend on what the outcome of this procedure would be, whether or not anyone has ever carried it out, or or in particular, whether or not anyone has ever carried it out correctly. Something is morally wrong if any principle that would permit it would be one for which there was an argument of this kind, 
showing that it should be rejected. This constructivist account of moral right and wrong depends on a prior understanding of what reasons people have. And the question we're concerned with here is whether there might be a further account that would be constructivist of reasons themselves. I mentioned this I mentioned the, the, the moral version here just to give an example of what, what, what a constructivist account in this broad sense of constructivist that I'm talking about here in the normative domain might look like. So one strategy for developing a general constructivist account of reasons might follow the model of the iterative conception of set. Sets are composed of their elements, other sets or individuals. This makes it very inviting to characterize the domain of sets by specifying how new sets can arise from old sets. The iterative conception is one attempt, one attempt to do this. And as that example illustrates, I think, although such of you might be called constructivist, since it specifies how the universe of sets is constructed in this infinite uh, trans, transfinite procedure, it's not really a form of constructivism in the mathematical sense, um, in the sense which Dummett uh, describes since the process of construction isn't in general a process that we could actually carry out or ever see the results of directly. Following this model, however, it's an inviting strategy to characterize the domain of reasons by giving principles specifying how some reasons arise from others or, or, or characterizing the ways in which an agent has one reason in virtue of having other reasons. Principles of means-ends reasoning, for example, however these principles are specified, would be an example. I need to pause here to note an important distinction between two ways in which a claim about reasons for action might be said, from, might be said to derive from or depend upon other claims about reasons. I myself want to defend a form of holism about practical reasoning, that conclusions about reasons for action are justified simply by thinking carefully about them in the mode I des described by the me method of reflective equilibrium, considering what general principles about reasons would explain them, what implications these would have, considering the plausibility of the implications of these principles, and so on. So, for example, suppose it seems to me that someone has reason to do A because he or she would find it pleasant. Well, does pleasure always constitute a reason? I think. Well, there are cases in which it doesn't seem to do so. Taking pleasure in the pain of someone one dislikes, for example, doesn't seem to provide a good reason uh, for bringing about that pain. But how can we distinguish between pleasures that really do provide reasons and those that do not? So we, we try to look for a refined idea. What, what's the difference between the cases where pleasure provides a reason and the cases where it doesn't? So the conclusions we reach through this process will depend upon the claims we make along the way and have confidence in about the cases in which pleasure does provide a reason and cases in which something initially plausibly called pleasure anyway seems very clearly on reflection not to do so. So this is a process in which the conclusions about reasons that we reach depend upon various other conclusions about reasons that we rely on along the way in, in, carrying, out, in carrying out the argument. This kind of dependence, however, is a matter of how the justification for believing some claims about reasons for action depends upon other such claims about reasons. The dependence involved in the kind of constructivism I'm considering, the kind of which the principle of means-ends reasoning would be an example, is different. It's a matter of one consideration's being a reason for an agent because certain other considerations are reasons for him or her. A claim of dependence of the latter kind might be stated as a truth about reasons. 
there is sufficient reason to adopt end. If there is sufficient reason to adopt end E, then the agent has reason to do one of the actions that would advance E. That's close to Joseph Ross's facilitative principle. Alternatively, as others might hold, it could be stated as a requirement of rationality. If one has adopted E as an end, then one must, insofar as one is not irrational, see the fact that, it, that something would help to bring about E as a reason to do that. Principles of both these forms, principles about reasons and principles about rationality, might be correct. If the former truth about reasons holds, then one would expect perhaps fully rational thinking to reflect it in the way that the latter principle states. If a person believes that he or she has reason to promote an end, then he or she, if rational, will believe that he or she has reason to do what promotes it. Even if this principle of rationality is correct, however, it's important to note that it yields no conclusions about what an agent really has reason to do, but only conclusions about what agents must see as reasons insofar as they're not rational, not irrational, sorry, given their other beliefs. This can be seen, again, uh, from the fact that the requirement of rationality here applies even if the agent, in fact, has no reason at all to pursue the end that was mentioned. The former reasons-based version of the principle makes this dependence on the reasons for E explicit by beginning, if an agent has sufficient reason to pursue E, and so on. This marks it, in my mind, as the more fundamental principle, even if some version of the rationality-based one is also correct. Let me call principles of this kind, of which principles underlying means, ends, reasoning are an example, principles of construction. How do we see that such principles are correct? I suggest, and we'll take it as a working hypothesis, that they can be seen to be correct by reflection on the idea of what it is to be a reason for action, or alternatively in the other form, reflection on the idea of a rational agent. I'm not suggesting that these principles are analytic or that they are contained in the concepts of a reason for action or the concept of a rational agent. Rather, I'm suggesting that they are seen as correct, again, through a reflective equilibrium process of thinking about how the ideas of reasons for action or the idea of rational agency are best understood. Here again, I'm thinking by analogy with the way in which axioms of set theory or the iterative conception are arrived at by reflection on the concept of a set, even though that reflection isn't properly thought of as a kind of <coughs> discovering of analytic truths. In particular, the reflection that leads us to see that these principles of construction are correct doesn't rely on any particular judgments about which things are, in fact, reasons. I will say that claims that can be justi justified in this way, that is, justified by thinking about the best way of understanding what it is for something to be a reason, or the best way of understanding what it is for someone to be a rational agent with no reliance on, at the beginning, on any claims about which things are reasons, as principles that have a formal basis. At this point, we should note a structural difference between the realm of sets and the realm of reasons for action. A characterization of the domain of sets can be given entirely, or almost entirely, in terms of principles of construction, which specify the existence of some sets given the existence of others almost entirely if the existence of the empty set has to be posited at the outset. It's not constructed out of any other set, right? But a characterization of the realm of reasons for action cannot have the analogous form. In order for us to have reasons for action, there must be some valid claims about reasons that do not normatively depend on other prior reasons in the way that I, in, through the form of dependence that I described. Indeed, there are many such reasons 
And a complete account of the epistemology of reasons for action must explain, perhaps even first and foremost, how we can know truths about reasons that are underived from other claims about reasons. This is the most difficult part. How then could we describe a process through, through which we might come to know particular underived truths about reasons? My own answer is that we proceed in the way I described above in discussing whether pleasure was or wasn't a reason for action. We examine our responses carefully, consider what general claims about reasons they would lead to or be explained by, assess the plausibility of the implications of these more general claims in turn, seeking reflective equilibrium. But this account faces a challenge. When we come to believe through this process that some fact P is a reason for us to do A, what supports our view that this is a case of coming to a correct conclusion about the reasons that there are, rather than simply being a reflection of our particular psychology, a quirk of some kind? Since the process of seeking reflective equilibrium depends at every point on our assessment of the plausibility of various particular claims about reasons, why think that what it yields is anything other than a more or less accurate portrait of our particular psychological tendencies? This epistemological challenge is the remnant of the question with which we began about how we can get in touch with normative facts, but freed now, I think, from its unnecessarily metaphysical framework. It still remains as a challenge. This challenge provides one line of thought leading to a Kantian view. This line of thought begins with the idea of a distinction between thinking that depends solely on the concept of a rational agent, or, as I might say, the thinking about the idea of what could be a reason for, for action, uh, and thinking, on the other hand, that involves focusing one's attention on some particular consideration and finding it, or trying to decide whether it is, a reason for some particular action. All conclusions of the latter kind, Kant believed, depend on our subjective responses, our inclinations, as he called them. Hence, only reflections of the former kind can lead to conclusions about practical matters that, have, that can be considered objective. These are the claims that have what I called above a formal basis. Reflection of this formal sort, Kant believed, is constrained by two ideas. The first is in order to see ourselves as agents, we must see our practical reasoning as having the capacity to assess and potentially overrule the appeal of any inclination or combination of inclinations. We must be self-determining, not just pushed around. This means, he thought, that we must see the highest level principle of our practical reasoning as one which is purely formal, that is, as appealing to the idea of law-governed willing rather than appealing to the reason we have to promote any particular end. He thought there was only one such principle, what he called the categorical imperative. The second constraint, according at least to many Kantians, is that we must see our wills as non-derivative sources of reasons, that is, as capable of making things valuable by choosing them as ends. Each of these is a claim about how we can understand or make sense of the idea of rational agency. Uh, it's arrived at, as I would say, or not arrived at, by a kind of reflective equilibrium thinking about how that idea could possibly be understood and made sense of. Neither of these content views seems to me tenable. Neither his inclination-based interpretation of all of our tendencies to see particular considerations as reasons, nor his interpretation of the conditions of rational agency. But even if one doesn't accept Kant's account of the two sides of this dichotomy, the, the purely formal and the substantive, one might still accept the dichotomy and the line of thinking that it supports. 
that in order for us to have grounds for seeing conclusions about reasons for action as having any claim to objectivity, we must see them as having a purely formal basis, as grounded in reflection on the idea of a reason or on the idea of rational agency, rather than merely reflecting what we ourselves happen to find attractive, even after reflection. For in the latter case, how could we tell that it isn't just our subjectivity speaking? This way of looking at the matter fills what otherwise might seem to be a gap in Kant's discussion. In claiming that in order to see ourselves as acting, rather than merely being pushed around by our inclinations, we must see our highest level principle of practical reasoning as merely formal. Kant seems, at least he always seemed to me, to be ignoring the possibility that our ability to assess and potentially overrule our inclinations could lie in our ability to make judgments about what's good or about what we have reason to do that weren't simply reflections of inclination. But, looking at this in the form we've just been considering it, how can an agent have adequate ground for thinking that what she's doing is making a judgment of this latter kind rather than merely being attracted to a particular alternative for some purely subjective reason? This is a live question, and it doesn't depend on the distinctively, on distinctively conscient premises or on Kant's distinctive answer. If the answer is that an agent can have grounds for thinking that what he or she is doing is really deciding about a reason, only if she, he or she has ground for seeing the judgment as having what I call a formal basis, that is to say, as supported by the best interpretation of the very idea of a reason or the very idea of rational agency, then this closes the gap just mentioned in Kant's presentation of the argument. This connects with and complements a point that I made in my first lecture. I said there that part of the appeal of rationality-based views for many people, including some desire theorists, is their ability to explain how reasons, in Korsgaard's term, get a grip on the agent. Such views enable us to go beyond merely saying that a consideration is a reason for the agent by linking that consideration to something that's already true of the agent, thereby making the reason one that the agent cannot deny without irrationality. I said that this explanation of the grip of reasons, is said in my first lecture, that this explanation of the grip of reasons has greater significance and a greater appeal in the context of interpersonal argument about reasons than it has from a first-person perspective. From a first-person perspective, I said, the question that is relevant for an agent is just, is this a reason? The fact, if it is a fact, that the agent must, given the other things she takes to be reasons, see this consideration as a reason unless she is irrational, doesn't settle the matter. What matters is whether these other things really are reasons. The agent can't avoid addressing that question directly. All of that's true. But when we focus, as we are now doing, on an agent's possible doubts about her answer to this substantive question, the grip that might be provided by a rationality-based account may seem more relevant from the agent's own point of view. As I mentioned, Korsgaard says that from the agent's own point of view, an agent must keep stepping back and asking why until, as she put it, it is impossible, unnecessary, or incoherent to ask why again. As I pointed out in that lecture, the crucial question in assessing this claim is, when is it unnecessary to ask why again? This is, as I said, the substantive question of when the agent's confidence that some consideration is a reason is justified confidence. And it is just this question that we are now confronting again. The Kantian view 
claims that an agent can have good ground for thinking that, sh that he has made a judgment about a reason only if this judgment can be grounded in the very idea of a reason or rational agency. Otherwise, Korsgaard says, the agent has nothing to go on but his confidence that it is a reason. Her suggestion being that this confidence will always be misplaced. What conception of rationality then might play this role? I have explained why Kant's view doesn't seem to me satisfactory. Looking elsewhere, we should bear in mind that, as I pointed out in my first lecture, the relevant notion of rationality that we're going to appeal to here couldn't be the broad idea of rationality, according to which what is rational is just what one has most reason to do. Appeal to that idea in this context would be circular. One alternative, I think, is a narrower notion of rationality opposed to irrationality of the sort that involves the sort of irrationality that involves holding incompatible attitudes, such as having an end but denying that the fact that A would promote this end is any reason to do A. This is the conception captured by requirements of rationality of the kind that John Broome discusses, for example. Principles of construction, which was what I was calling earlier principles of construction, for deriving some claims about reasons for others are requirements of this kind. The question before us is whether they are the only such requirements or whether being rational in this narrow sense of avoiding conflicting attitudes require us to recognize some particular things as reasons. I agree with Broome in believing that it does not, that such requirements have only to do with the relations between an agent's attitudes, not the relation between those attitudes and the world. So if we reject Kant's particular way of interpreting rationality, we reject, we can't appeal to the general idea that something's rational if it's what you actually have most reason to do. It seems to me if this is right, I haven't argued for it, but it seems to me obviously right, we can't appeal to this one particular narrower idea of rationality according to which something's required by rationality if to fail to do it would be irrational, that is would involve a conflict between your particular attitudes. What other alternative is there? Well, moving beyond this narrow idea of irrationality, Derek Parfit has suggested that there are some substantive claims about reasons that it is irrational to deny. He gives, as an example, thinking that it matters to one's reason for avoiding pain whether it will or will not occur on a Tuesday. Perhaps he's right. Maybe this is properly called irrational, even though it doesn't involve any internal conflict in one's attitudes. But I don't myself see any ground for calling this irrational other than the substantive obviousness of the claim in question. If this is correct, then this notion of appealing to this notion of rationality would not give our arguments what I call a formal basis, since the notion of rationality itself would be grounded in some particular ideas about which claims about reasons are the most obvious. I believe, although I can hardly claim to have established it, that the claims about reasons that have a formal basis include only principles of construction, not substantive claims about what reasons we have. If this is correct, then the epistemological challenge I've described can't be answered through the quasi-conscient strategy of appealing to judgments that have a formal basis. The only method we have for arriving at and assessing particular conclusions about reasons is the one I gestured at in discussing the case of pleasure as a reason for action, the method of seeking a reflective equilibrium of our substantive judgments about these reasons. 
The question of whether a conclusion that we arrive at in this way is correct as a claim about reasons or just a quirk, a mere manifestation of our particular psychology, is simply and only the first order question of whether that consideration in question really is a reason or not. It can only be answered by further reflection of this very same kind. To see why we should not find this conclusion depressing, we should look back at the epistemological challenge itself and ask why it might have seemed that, would be, that we would be in a stronger position to respond to this challenge if we could show that our judgments about reasons had a formal basis in the best understanding of the concept of a reason for action or in the concept of a rational agent. I can think of two possible advantages that such grounding might have. One is that this basis would provide conclusions about reasons for action with normative authority, would give them a grip on the agent by grounding them in something that, that an agent thinking about what reason he or she has for doing something already accepts, namely that they are looking for a reason or that they are, acting, that they are a, rational, a rational agent. This advantage seems to me illusory. A claim about a reason for action, if correct, has the only kind of authority it needs. And this is especially true from the agent's point of view, as I said, which is the one we are presently considering. If an agent accepts a judgment about a reason for action, then she will see that reason as normative, and if not irrational, will respond to it accordingly. So I mentioned this possible advantage only to set it aside. The second properly epistemological advantage is that showing that a judgment about reason for action had a formal basis in the concept of a reason, or the concept of a rational agent, would show that it was an answer to an intellectual question that, like a question about sets, had a determinate objective answer, an answer that we can discover using familiar intellectual abilities to reflect on our concepts and work out the best interpretation of them. But we should recall here that although the axioms of set theory, the iterative conception of set, and claims about requirements of rationality are supported by reflection on the relevant concepts, none of these things is analytic. Their support lies rather in there being the outcome of, again, a reflective equilibrium-seeking process aimed at finding the most plausible overall understanding of these ideas. This is in particular the most, or I would say more than the most, that can be claimed for Kant's conclusions about conditions of rational agency. He's trying to find the overall, the best, most plausible overall interpretation of that idea, and I argue it seems to me he fails. But even if he succeeded, that's what he would be, that's what he would be doing, and his, the authority of his conclusion would depend upon that, that network of claims to plausibility. The claim of these conclusions to, sorry, the claim of these conclusions to objectivity thus depends simply on the quality and authority of this process. Substantive conclusions about reasons that are not formally based seem by contrast to be subjective only if they are assumed to be isolated individual responses like the occurrences of a desire. But the judgments about reasons that survive the kind of process I've described aren't like this. They too have undergone careful reflection and reexamination. Perhaps it will be said that the process of reflection through which we arrive at an overall view of reasons for action is not an intellectual process in the relevant sense. But this seems to me to beg the question and to be a mere prejudice. The determinateness of claims about reasons, the degree to which such claims have definite truth values, depends upon the outcome of this process. I will, I will go discuss the nature and structure of this process and the plausibility of thinking that its outcomes are determinate in my final lecture. Thank you.